Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Prabita Saha. And I'm Liz Clayton Fuller. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be able to chat about nerdy things with you. (laughs) Yay! Uh, Liz, why don't you tell um, our listeners, for those of them who aren't already familiar with you, uh, a little bit about who you are and what what kind of nerdy things you do when you're not here talking to us. Sure. So all of my nerdiness, well, okay, not all of it. A lot of my nerdiness is centered around birds. So I am (laughs) a scientific illustrator and educator. I run my own business and I also stream on Twitch uh, as I Paint Burbs. And the name really says it all. That is what I do all the time. I work with ornithologists and I learn a lot of cool things about birds and I get to paint them. So yeah. That's that's me. All about burbs, baby. <laughs> Just absolutely one of the coolest jobs a person can have, I think. I, I'm glad I you think so. I say that as someone who can't draw, so it seems... Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very specific. Uh, and also, if you ever want to learn how to draw, you know, hit me up. I love teaching people how to draw. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, genuinely going to. Okay, great. <laughs> Amazing. I want to learn how to draw birds in cowboy outfits. I can teach you that too. <laughs> so yeah, I I do I do scientific illustration, and then to balance out the like seriousness that that is, I also illustrate birds in cowboy hats and boots because it brings me joy. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> listeners, Perbito was not just pulling that out of thin air, though. <laughs> it's plausible that she would. Uh, <laughs> so let's get into it. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about a fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, drawing verbs, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was, but not in like an actual winners or losers kind of way, because I recently decided that that bores me now, um, but I'm not rewriting the intro. I will eventually stop giving this disclaimer, but I feel like I just, I don't want people to be confused. I want everybody <laughs> to be happy and have a good time. So, Perfita, what's your tease? Today, I'll be talking about how Zambia tried to beat the U.S. to the moon in the 1960s. Wonderful. Amazing. Sweet. Liz, what's your tease? My tease is that turkey vultures projectile vomit as a defense mechanism and that is not even the coolest thing about them (laughs) yum i love that i love a good a good vulture story (laughs) i feel like some of my favorite blog posts uh when i was at the washington post were if it wasn't about poop it was about vultures and then it was also often also about poop but yeah it's all related um, yeah uh so my tease is that i am gonna talk about what the heck is up with curly hair why why it be like that Um, amazing yeah relevant 
Yeah. <laughs> Will there be a lot of personal anecdotes? It's, uh, yeah, it's I can't help it. Um, Pervito, I'd love to start with this space race story that is completely new to me. Yeah, surprisingly new to me too, even though it happened 60-something years ago. Um, I guess many of the places where I read about it spoke about it as this kind of long forgotten chapter in history, um, partially because we're unclear how much of it was kind of um, a media ploy versus actually happening, but it's fascinating nonetheless, and it serves a nice bridge to talking about um, uh, astronomy and uh, the the space hopes of uh countries in Africa today. So, um, yeah, so we're going to start in 1964, big year, uh, both for the space race between the U.S. and Soviet Union, um, but also for Zambia, because that is the year that Zambia gained independence and became the country that we know of it today. Uh, Previously, it was called Rhodesia, and it was colonized by the British for a few decades Um, So, yeah, baby country, uh, you know, with its own independent government now. And um, all of a sudden, the world starts hearing about this uh, particular science teacher. Uh, His name is Edward Makuka Nicoloso. Um, And uh, he was a teacher, but also he called himself the head of Zambia's National Academy of Science, Space Research, and Philosophy. Again, the Zambian government is just formed, so it didn't really have agencies or departments at this point. So, I mean, honestly, Edward just kind of, he found an opportunity and he took it to self-appoint himself. Good for him. And speak to, (laughs) yeah, um, speak to the international press, uh, magazines such as Time picked up his story. But essentially, uh, Edward was fascinated by space and uh, this new uh, kind of rush to get to space, um, again, uh, fueled by U.S.-Soviet competition. Um, So in 1964, where here in the U.S., we were just starting to uh, test out the Saturn uh, V rocket, which is eventually what carried Apollo astronauts into space. Uh, So we had not put anyone in orbit or on the moon just yet. Uh, The Soviet Union had sent um, satellites to the moon. I believe the first one got there in 1959. Uh, That was Luna 1. Some of them not so successful. Most of them crash landed into the moon, but they did get there first. Um, That's maybe not. Whenever NASA or anyone really has uh, like a probe or a lander or a rover go down, you'll see a lot of stuff about like the first controlled landing <laughs> because yes. because otherwise yeah. people will be like technically the other one did land so <laughs> <laughs> yes lots of caveats when it comes to first with space i think um but but still cool a uh, exciting time for uh space exploration developing rockets um but also a scary time because we didn't know what would happen if people went into space right So uh, Edward was apparently not afraid of the fact of going into space because he recruited um, 12 young Zambians uh, to start giving them astronaut training uh, right here on Earth um, with very meager tools and resources at his disposal. So uh, while NASA was training its astronauts, getting them ready for the zero gravity situation, Um, in military tankers and anti-gravity pools, uh, some of the same, you know, um, practices that they go through today for astronaut training. Uh, Edward took a bit more of a DIY approach. Um, He, at least the stories report that 
he would um, put his uh, trainees in oil drums and roll them down hills um, so that they could get used to being weightless. Uh, they would... Um, I just, I don't know. Do, I mean, listen, he was working with what he had and I really admire that spirit, but I don't know that being weightless is at the top of the list of sensations I would expect to feel being rolled down a hill in a barrel. Yes. Yes. I was thinking the, the same thing. The physics thing. is a little fuzzy. A lot way. of confounding factors there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, get, it gets better. Um, he, uh, his astronauts were uh, very good at handstands by the end of their training because he made them walk on their hands um, because he thought that this might be the best way to navigate the moon once they landed on it. Um, and yeah, a lot of like, uh, there were some mentions of free falling a lot. Um, I imagine that's a little more extreme that trust falls, but still uh, <laughs> far ways away from real astronaut training. Um, but anyway, he got, he got attention. Um, and he, by the end of, uh, I believe he, they went through two years of this, of, of Edwards Astronaut School. And by the end, he had picked out his cohort for the first uh, mission to the moon. And he actually, his lead astronaut was a teenage girl. Her name was Matha Mwamba, and she was 16. Um, and I guess she just excelled at the training because Edward thought that she should be the face of Zambia's space mission. Um, Matha would have been uh, accompanied by uh, one adult, a uh, missionary, and um, two cats. And also there was mention of Edward's dog, whose name was Cyclops, going into space as well. Um, I think he was inspired by Laika, the the Soviet dog that went into space and sadly perished. Mm. Um, So... There not a lot of details on how they were going to launch their astronauts or what kind of spacecraft they would be using. Uh, there were some cool um, national spacesuits that were modeled to the press, um, but uh, that's pretty much as far as the mission went. Uh, the thing is, Edward did not have funding, which is probably why his um, the actual technology never developed much further than uh, his abstract visions. Um, He tried to get the UN to fund him. Uh, He reached out to other countries. Again, Zambia, just a new country, so it didn't have much um, in its coffers at this point. Uh, And people in general seemed to wish him well, but of course no one really took him seriously. So uh, that's about as far as this moon mission went um and again it was not really talked about uh again until uh the 2000s when um some zambian expats kind of rediscovered this story there were a bunch of photographs that were taken with some of the magazine articles back in the 1960s and they kind of repurposed um the historical footage and uh images and created this kind of like sci-fi version of Edward's story uh, that they called the Afronauts. So this is a series you can um, go and look up today. Uh, To be clear, it has been doctored so that some of the um, Zambian trainee astronauts were actually, you know, photoshopped onto the moon. And I say that because with all the um, moon conspiracy, the moon landing conspiracy theories, uh, let's just know that this one is fictional. Sure. So <laughs> go into it with that in mind. But it is, it's very cool. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of space for, you know, art and imagination in terms of uh, futuristic space flight. Um, but then we should also consider like the realities of the fact that. Um, None of the African countries have had a space launch of their own just yet. Uh, I think South Africa might be the only 
nation so far on the continent with its own space agency. And I believe it's um, been working with SpaceX uh, to at least um, get its own like satellite program off the ground. Uh, we do have some space telescopes in uh, the southern portion of Africa. There's SALT in South Africa. And then um, the African Millimeter Telescope is being built in Namibia, which is uh, a couple countries away from Zambia. Um, and that's going to be part of the Event Horizon Telescope Network, yeah. which, um, if you guys remember, that's the that's the tool that helped us uh, image the first uh, black holes. Yeah. Um, so, so, cool. so lots, lots of potential uh, on the continent. Um, hopefully, at you know, in the next couple of decades, uh, the that potential will match uh, Edward's big, big dreams. Um, but until then, it's just a neat, uh, neat piece of history. I love that. Also. Um, cats in space it's a <laughs> i think cats would hate it honestly <laughs> dogs i think they can be convinced to have to have an okay time uh yeah cats i, I really don't think they'd be they'd be down um <laughs> but if you had a years long journey to mars let's say wouldn't you want I would definitely want a cat wouldn't you me? want the company yeah. of your cat that's true probably Cats. i'd still probably pick a dog <laughs> <laughs> I say that as someone with a cat that I love very much, but would she be my choice to go on a multi-year space mission with me? Probably not. You know, honestly, <laughs> I'm, I have a dog and I would not pick my dog to go to space with me. I would pick a dog. <laughs> love her so much, <laughs> but <laughs> she's not the one to go to space. <laughs> yes, this is a good point. I think there are, you know, the military trains like German Shepherds to be able to fly and lightly jump out of planes <laughs> with like cute little doggy goggles. So I would probably take one of those, those trained shepherds. Yeah, they're ready. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I am for having a, um, uh, a teen go to space. Let's get, let's get some Gen Z up there. Yeah, that would be 16 amazing. year olds. They'd make some amazing viral content. I was going to say, sure. I want to know what the content would be from space. <laughs> what are the TikToks like from space? <laughs> it's it's really, it feels like it's only a matter of time before somebody's making TikTok videos on the ISS. Yeah. Um, it's like, I'm almost saying it out loud, I'm almost surprised it hasn't happened yet. Because like, mm -hmm. you know, Chris Hadfield's and several other astronauts really were like, I'm going to, I'm tweeting from space. I'm mm -hmm. going to make some YouTube videos from space. But like we're, as the, the first Gen Z astronaut is going to, going to blow that out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> I can literally just hear it now. Like, hey guys, here's a day in the life in space. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Amazing. I, I both relish and dread the thought. Definitely. Just um, yes. how I feel about TikTok. Agreed. <laughs> Big same. Huge same. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small? Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Okay, we're back. And uh, I would love to hear what you have to say about vultures, Liz. Yes. So the way that I usually learn about birds is that I have a project to paint them. So I'd like to preface that the way that I learned about turkey vultures and really got into how cool they are was actually from a meme. Um, And then I (laughs) painted them after I fell in love with them. So (laughs) I don't know if y'all remember sort of early in the Barbie movie campaign, there was sort of a template and it was like, this Barbie is an astronaut. (laughs) This Barbie is a diplomat. And There was like an aquarium in Oregon that posted a turkey vulture and it said, this Barbie projectile vomits in (laughs) self-defense. Amazing. And I was like, give them a raise. (laughs) Exactly. It was amazing. It blew up. I was obsessed. And so I was like, what more can I learn about turkey vultures? What is their deal? So yes, they projectile vomit in self-defense, which is really cool and super, super effective because... Apparently, they can project up to 10 feet, which is absolutely wild and very, very far. And (laughs) (laughs) their puke is really gnarly. So they eat carrion exclusively, only dead animals. So their puke is full of dead animal chunks. It's very stinky. It can burn your eyes. It's got a super off-putting smell. So it's a super effective strategy for them. And not only is the puke itself a deterrent, but it also lightens the load. So if they're distressed, they're going to puke to (laughs) get some of that weight off of them so that they can also escape. So... It's kind of an amazing strategy. Yes, uh, I'm very impressed by them because sometimes they will eat so much actually that they can't fly. So it's sort of a sort of a twofold strat of lightening the load and also absolutely freaking out whatever is attacking them and their stomach contents. So this is the this is the deep dive into vulture puke. Their stomach is so acidic that they are able to eat carcasses carrying all kinds of nasty toxins and diseases like anthrax, tuberculosis, and even rabies without getting sick. So it is really, really amazing. And their puke is some serious stuff. But also, it's so cool because they play a critical role in the ecosystem by basically being nature's cleanup crew. You know, like they are keeping the carcasses from piling up because, you know, (laughs) dead animals, dead things can spread disease, but the vultures are very on top of it. And I think they're really misunderstood. Like, I know that I personally grew up very misunderstanding vultures. I thought that they sort of, like, circled their prey, and that's why you would see them flying in these circular patterns. And I don't know about y'all, but when I was a kid... I tried to get a turkey vulture to come to me by (laughs) drawing in red chalk on the ground and laying in it, you know, just in my driveway, hoping (laughs) that a turkey vulture might come down. And of course they didn't because they only eat things that are actually dead. (laughs) But really um, discerning palate. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, But I did want to give it a try. It did not work. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the reason that they fly in those circles is actually they they take flight and then they catch these thermal vents that kind of spiral upwards. So basically, they're just kind of chilling when they're circling (laughs) like that. And what they're doing is control. Exactly. It's like cruise control. Someone once said that turkey vultures are like (laughs) one of the laziest birds because they just cruise in the air. They don't actually kill anything. They only eat things that are already dead. You know, all of these things, they're just like, yeah, I'm just chilling. Oh, yeah, okay, I guess I'll eat something that I find. You know, just very, very casual birds. And I don't don't think them to be lazy. I think them to be quite strategic, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, they're like, they're like really like hippie freegan. Yes, yes. Like, the freegans and of the bird world. Not necessarily mm-hmm. lazy, just like, listen. Yeah. It's going to go to waste. They're so chill. Yeah. <laughs> why why <laughs> would I buy food? Exactly. Why would I buy food? And yeah, you know, the, the common denominator for what they eat is literally only that it's dead. So I live in Tennessee and I have seen them eating raccoons, rabbits, deer, coyotes, armadillo, skunks, cows, like literally anything possible they will eat it and the way that they find their prey so this is just like 
When I learned about the puke, I was like, give me more facts about the turkey vulture. (laughs) And everything I learned just made me fall more in love with them. So when they are chilling in the thermal vents and you think of them looking for prey, but actually turkey vultures have like the most amazing olfactory system of any bird ever 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 they have an incredible sense of smell and so what they're doing is they're actually just smelling and looking for their prey that way so um a lot of other vultures don't have as good of a sense of smell and they will follow the turkey vultures who have the keen (laughs) sense of smell to find the prey um so that's amazing just a lot of working smarter not harder in the vulture world (laughs) exactly and i love that for them and i think we could all learn something from (laughs) them i know i could uh, but yeah, their sense of smell is so incredible that they can smell dead things from miles and miles away. And interestingly, their sort of preferred range of deadness is like 12 to 24 hours. Like you think of things getting like really stinky sort of later, but actually the sweet spot is really not that long after they died. And it is smelly enough that the vulture can pick it up and find it. So when they do um, find their prey, they have a couple of really cool adaptations to keep them from getting sick in addition to their like wild amount of stomach acid. If you've seen them, they're very cute. They're so named turkey vultures because they have these little bald pink heads. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that they're very adorable. I'm not sure that everyone else would use that exact (laughs) word to describe them, but (laughs) I think their little pink bald heads are super cute and The reason that they are bald is because they evolved to not have feathers on their head because the way that they get into their prey is essentially the easiest access orifice. They just literally stick their whole head in there and you can figure out what that might be. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote wrote a story on a study on this uh, for the Washington Post. It it appalled many readers of uh, the paper of record. Um, yeah, I think my, the headline was just literally vultures eat their prey, butt first. Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That is true. Yes. Evolutionary geniuses. Again, smarter, not harder. Yes, exactly. They're like, (laughs) I'm not trying to work that hard to get in here. (laughs) Just give me a butt and I'm good. So they stick their heads in there and you can imagine it's a bit gnarly in there. So when they pull out their heads, if they had feathers on their heads, It would be impossible for them to preen. The bacteria would get stuck in there. The feathers would get matted. Also, interestingly, so turkey vultures are technically raptors. So they're like in the group of like hawks and eagles and ospreys and things. But their feet are actually more like chicken feet. (laughs) Like they really don't have like cool claws and stuff. Their feet are just sort of like there to hold down the prey and their beaks are what do all the work so they have like mm. really cool really pointy beaks and that's like they don't tear anything with their claws it's all beak work which is pretty <laughs> rad and <laughs> so as if puking on anything that scared you wasn't gnarly enough they also use a practice called urohydrosis which is where if it's too hot outside they defecate on their legs to cool down so they're just like amazing nasty little guys honestly (laughs) i love that yeah it is uh it is the best and honestly as we have been talking i can see out my window and one has flown by which is amazing um so shout out to turkey vultures yeah exactly what died or are they just chilling we don't know but (laughs) amazingly their range is enormous so they can be found from the southern part of canada all the way down to the southern tip of south america like turkey vultures are everywhere and so i feel like they're a great gateway bird into birding (laughs) like if you're like i don't really know if i want to watch birds or not just like Look for turkey vultures. They are everywhere. And if you see one, say thank you. I know that sounds really silly, but every time I see them, I'm like, you guys are doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So I hope that I hope that you see one and have sort of renewed respect for what they do and the role that they play in the ecosystem because they're amazing. And so turkey vultures 
are all over, um, you know, North and South America, and then in Europe and Asia, vultures convergently evolved. So the vultures that are in the old world are not actually genetically related to the vultures in the new world, but that exact sort of type of creature evolved there to fill the same ecological need of Amazing. being the cleanup crew. I know. There's always going to be rotting stuff to eat <laughs> exactly. <back> first. <laughs> there will always be dead things everywhere that need cleaning. And thankfully, there will always be some kind of vulture to swoop by and take care of business. <laughs> wow. I love this. I'm, yeah. My heart is full. It's grown three sizes with regard to vultures. Amazing. Um, we... On a previous episode, I talked about the mysterious Kentucky meat shower mm. when meat rained from the sky in Kentucky. And uh, one of the prevailing theories is that actually just a bunch of vultures <laughs> all ejected right. Me, uh, right right, above this lady's farm. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll never know for sure. But having looked at a bunch of the theories, that one yeah. seemed like most likely. <laughs> it sounds plausible, right? One of them got spooked yacked, scared the one next to them, and then it's just a domino effect. (laughs) I mean, it could happen. I've read stories as well. So vultures roost communally. So a bunch of them like hang out in trees together. And people are just, they tell stories of the vultures moving into their neighborhood and like (laughs) puking and pooping. And they're like acidic barf is like peeling the paint off of their houses. I mean, it's just like the gnarliest (laughs) stuff ever. (laughs) But I just, I love them so much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they're great. I love that they have tried every strategy to not have to actually kill things. Yes, right. Like they seem like, going back to the hippie metaphor. Yeah. They're just lovers. They don't want any war. They are. They are. And you know how in Western movies, they'll be like, we'll leave you out for the buzzards. When I was a kid, I thought that that meant that the vultures were going to like come get you, you know, but actually what it means is (laughs) they'll wait until you die and then they'll clean it up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ah, Amazing. All right. We're going to take one more quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. All right, we're back, and I'm going to talk about curls. What are they good for? Absolutely everything. Um, <laughs> Say it again. So, yes. <laughs> well done. So um, I've been thinking about uh, curly hair for mm, probably the last, like, roughly 31 years, aka my life, um, because I have very curly hair, and um, I really had the classic a Caucasian very curly hair trajectory where as a child it was brushed out uh, and that was horrible. I just had, it was, nobody knew what to do. Um, (laughs) Which is especially surprising given that I am um, of Sicilian and Ashkenazi ancestry so everyone in my family has curly hair but uh, the powers of assimilation and white supremacy are so strong that all of the adults in my life were also brushing their curls out and saying, what can we do about this hair? Mm -hmm. So (laughs) with the exception of, uh, I do have some great pictures of my parents in the more like disco era having luxurious, uh, voluminous curls. But by the 90s, unfortunately, we were all trying to be uh, Rachel from Friends. And I was given that haircut on numerous occasions, I think subconsciously, by hairstylists. (laughs) So as I grew up, I realized, wow, my hair is not just curly, but like really curly. I've had, this has happened more than once. I found out that someone who's known me for an extended period of time thinks that I get perms. Um, They have, yeah. They didn't. (laughs) They said that to you? Yeah, yeah. It's like truly they just assumed this whole time that I am like I am meticulously curling every every strand. Um, And that has always really baffled me. But in uh, researching this fact, which is pegged to some new research I'll talk about in a minute, um, I found out that according to like 
research on the subject, which is admittedly kind of scant, among Europeans, the population only 12.7% supposedly have truly curly hair. The uh, Then there's like a basically 40-40 split between straight hair and wavy hair. Um, and so with that context, I'm like, wow, I guess like, it really is hard for some of my friends to like wrap their heads around the idea that people naturally have hair this curly. Um, but all of this rambling intro is just to say that finally some amazing, brilliant people are working on the subject of understanding curly hair, its evolution, its uh, many diverse forms, uh, its behavior, and they are finding really cool stuff and like more importantly they're shining a light on the fact that like uh the way we think about hair type has been really reductionist and super oversimplified and uh, honestly most of the time just like wrong for, for like most of uh the history of modern science so this uh new study is looking specifically at like the usefulness of uh, curly and tightly coiled hair. And I'll talk more about their findings in a minute. But to give some background, uh, one of the authors on this paper is um, Dr. Tina Lissisi, who is kind of like becoming the preeminent hair researcher. <laughs> um, basically, uh, as she was coming up in grad school, she was really interested in... Um, understanding hair type and like its morphological differences, its evolutionary origins, and there just was not existing research on it. Um, and so now she is part of a lot of really cool work to change that. Um, and I'm going to link to an awesome profile of her by a former PopSci intern, Hannah Seo. So definitely check that out on popsci.com slash weird to hear more about uh, Dr. Lissizzi's work in particular. And I'm also going to include a video. She has a series for PBS. Um, I think it's called Why Am I Like This, <laughs> which is a great <laughs> name for a series on like uh, genetics and um, evolution. So first, I think it's so interesting to talk about uh why we have such a poor understanding of hair type. Um, the one obvious reason is racism. Um, you know, there was kind of the what was considered the European hair type and what was considered the uh, African hair type. And a lot of um, early research on the subject is um, very binary, very Eurocentric, very uh, white centric. Um, very negative about hair that was not uh, seen as typically European and Caucasian. So that is an obvious hurdle to getting good information about what hair type is actually like. Um, but then even once uh, science was ostensibly a little less racist and, and reductionist and Eurocentric, Lissisi and a lot of her colleagues have talked about the fact that uh, for a while, there was this idea that skin and hair were kind of like aesthetic and superficial subjects um, for research. And you can see like a lot of um, not that old sort of articles and discussions about uh, the evolution of hair, where people are very confidently assuming that hair evolution all came down to sexual selection because they're like, obviously, hair on your head serves no real purpose. It's all the same. So it must have been about what people found attractive, which is not the case. That might be the case for hair color, but that's kind of like a big open question still. But it's definitely not the case for hair type. But this just goes to show that like that kind of was the the assumption that like it, it it's just the hair on the top of your head. How important can it be? And yeah, even the way people who are very aware of their hair type and have, um, you know, hair types that aren't as catered to in the mainstream and have a reason to like really think about and talk about their hair curl pattern. Most people use um, a hair typing system that was actually created by Oprah Winfrey's stylist, Andrew, Andre Walker. And it is definitely like much better than nothing. Um, 
but it's still super subjective. It's not scientific at all. It's a, a hairstylist take on like averaging out the hair types. And um, it's very much like, what does your hair resemble the most? Um, and again, to bring it back to a personal anecdote, I have a very tight curl pattern and very uh, thick hair in terms of the number of hairs, but I have very fine individual hairs. And hairstylists, baffled, confused, <laughs> bamboozled uh, every single time. It's such a struggle. Um, shout out to like the three people who have ever given me a good haircut in my life. Um, and that's kind of, uh, that is a very, um, very common problem, especially when you get into people with uh, much tighter uh, coiled hair than mine, uh, where there's this sense that it's like, yeah, these are the buckets. And it's like, no, there's so many. It's so much more complicated than those buckets. And the other thing that Lissacy and her colleagues point out is that there are a lot of researchers, uh, scientists and doctors now who like stay away from any research topics that have to do with um, hair type and or skin color because they're they don't want to deal with like the potential murkiness and like ickiness of race and the history of race science. Um, and obviously uh, there is a huge history of eugenics based research in the U.S. and around the world. But um, a lot of researchers are now making the point like being like colorblind in your research doesn't actually help you know you don't just kind of ignoring that those research questions exist like race is a construct race doesn't exist different hair types do exist and in fact the problem is that they've been conflated with this thing that doesn't exist and that's oversimplified it's reductionist it's not helpful so it's like we got to do more <laughs> we gotta learn more so it's about researching our hair types as an actual spectrum of traits versus this uh, imaginary, um, very much disproven idea of distinct racial groups. Um, and that's where we get to like actually describing what makes curly hair uh, different. And Lysizia has published a couple of papers on this um, where she basically is arguing for looking at the curvature of individual strands, um, which are arranged on any single person's head and across, you know, all of humankind. And that curvature comes together to form a curl pattern. And then there's also the cross section of your hair. And that's like when we talk about coarse versus fine, that's what we're talking about. But she points out that there's this huge variation in size and in shape, like a lot of hairs are not cylindrical if you cut them down in a cross section. You, there, are, there are strands of hair that'll be like triangular or just like a real funky, funky, multi-sided shape. Um, That's and amazing. Obviously that, yeah, right? <laughs> this is and, blowing my mind right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really cool. And, you know, obviously that affects how your hair lays on your head and how it behaves and all this different stuff. So... Um, I'm really excited for uh, this awesome scientist and her colleagues to keep doing um, more and more research. But like what they've what people have found so far um, suggests that uh, curly hair evolved as like a very uniquely human trait because and this is something I've never really thought about. Um, other mammals don't have super tight curly hair. Um, it's not a thing that exists really outside of humans. And um, humans, of course, are also unique in that we lost all of our fur, except <laughs> mostly uh, on top of our heads. Um, obviously, your results may vary, but generally speaking, we have almost none and then a bunch on the top of our heads. Um and so we know that, like, our ancestors gradually lost fur. We know that for some reason it stayed where it stayed. And we also know that, um, you know, in our, like, deep ancestry coming out of the African continent, there was almost certainly quite a lot of um, densely curled 
hair. And I will say that actually going back and studying the archaeology of hair is super difficult. Um, the oldest hair specimen, human hair specimen that's ever been uh, found was 200,000 years old or so. And it was found in fossilized hyena poop. Thank you, hyenas. Uh, <laughs> that was in 2009. And then there was some more found a few years later. Um, but while they were able to be like, okay, like this physically, this is um, human hair. Uh, all of the keratin in the hair sample had been replaced by calcium carbonate. And so they couldn't look at DNA. So there's this problem with hair not being well-preserved enough in, um, you know, ancient human specimens for us to like figure out not just what it looked like, but like who it belonged to and like what their ancestry was. So that's where a lot of the the sort of like blank spots um, come from. And hopefully as our uh, methods get better and as more people are looking, we will find some like ancient hairs that can be um, more closely studied. Um, so we know that uh, curly hair is, um, you know, based on some gene mutations. Um, we know some of the genes that are related to it, um, but a lot of them are unknown. And uh, it's a dominant trait. So like once it's in the population, it's like pretty easy to keep it around. So we also know that hair genes can be related to like totally different stuff. Uh, for example, um, there's an East Asian gene variant that is linked to like very straight thick hair but it's also linked to the shape of like your jaw and your memory glands so it's possible that the at that the mutations that made it advantageous to have a certain hair type um stayed around not because of the hair type but because of something else related to it because it's all about protein uh structures so like you know it can can do all sorts of stuff this new study finally <laughs> finally getting back to that uh, was looking at this idea that's been gaining traction that uh, curly hair in particular uh, stayed on our heads as opposed to going away with the rest of our fur because it uh, helped protect our brains from the sun. Um, basically, all animals have to deal with body heat and radiant heat from the sun, and there are lots of different strategies for dealing with that. But we know that hominids like were doing something pretty wacky and different when they started like being bipedal and having bigger brains. And like it's basically like having like a giant CPU or like server farm in your head in terms of like the energy input required in terms of like the risk of overheating. It's just like very temperamental, very unwieldy, very impractical <laughs> as an <laughs> organ to have um, sitting on top of your fragile little spine. So. The idea is that we lost our hair because we evolved this ability to cool down by perspiring, which is like pretty unique and very cool. We have this like basically evaporative cooling built-in thing that not uh, doesn't exist in a lot of uh, mammals. And that was awesome. But what about the brain, which is so sensitive and, you know, sweating works by like you're already getting hot so your body starts to react and sweat so that you cool off and what if there was a way to keep the head area from ever getting so hot from the uh you know sun beating down on you and the idea is that hair uh protects you from some of that radiant heat and this is the first time to my knowledge that researchers have like really tried to test that. And I'm gonna link to some pictures on popside.com slash weird because uh, it's wild. One second, I'm gonna drop a link in the chat because like truly <laughs> I need I need everyone to see uh, what I'm seeing. I'm fully invested. This is fascinating. Also, my <laughs> mom has hair exactly like yours, Rachel. And it's beautiful, <laughs> both of Thank y'all. Thank you. <laughs> I have, you know, I actually, um, I've been dyeing my hair for so long that like I'm I'm gonna take a break from dyeing it uh sometime in twenty twenty four. I've decided I'm gonna grow it out. <laughs> and like dyeing really does like destroy your curl pattern. So mm. I'm like she's gonna 
My, my head is going to be magnificent. It's going to be out of control. I'm really excited. Amazing. Okay, so, sorry. I finally found this picture I was looking for. Uh, so, this is the... Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So, um, th- this is a, a thermal mannequin. Every time I read that, I, I see the word Merkin. There's just too many of the same letters in there, and we're talking about hair. But it's not. Mm-hmm. It's a thermal mannequin. And... Um, I, I really appreciate that the researchers uh, went out of their way to say, why why does the power plug into its eye sockets? We don't know. That's not a choice we made. <laughs> but uh, reader, listeners, I just, I, what can I tell you? Um, there is a mannequin in a chair with uh, power cords coming out of its eye sockets. Um, and Looks like Will Ferrell. <laughs> Or a Will Ferrell character. I was going to say it looks like a Dark Souls boss. (laughs) (laughs) All great comparison. Um, So yeah, they took this thermal mannequin and um, they heated it to a body temperature of 95 degrees. And then they put it under um, hot lights in a climate controlled wind tunnel. And then they measured the temperature on the mannequin's head. And they tested that when there was no wig. Um, and then they took a bunch of human hair wigs uh, that were all like similar in thickness and color, but had either straight strands, loose curls or tight coils. Um, and <laughs> under a simulation of a sun uh, around 86 degrees Fahrenheit, um, there was a huge difference between having hair and not having hair, basically. Um, you know, the, the sun would always heat up the mannequin's head, but even putting on any wig uh, cut that heat gain by more than half. Um, shout out to bald friends, sunscreen, <laughs> hats, important. Um, but yeah, so like having any hair on there uh, made a huge difference. Um, but yeah, then when they looked at uh, taking the moderately curled wig, uh, that made the scalp heat up even less than the straight haired wig. And the uh, tightly coiled wig was the most effective. Um, And, you know, they didn't investigate like the exact mechanism of this. But the thought is that um, it's blocking the, you know, like a literal radiant energy of the sun. But then, of course, it can also trap heat. Uh, But curlier hair has more air circulation in it. It's creating it's almost like I saw one uh, article comparing it to like having a, a nice spongy material on top of your head mm. there's still you're getting breeze and um straight hair is actually you know yes it protects you from the sun but then it also can keep you from losing heat in a way that curly hair is is much less effective for um so the thinking is you know again it's possible that straight hair came about for reasons totally unrelated to the hair itself and it just stayed around because it wasn't um, so harmful in places where there wasn't ton of sunlight and heat all the time. Uh, but it's also possible that in um, some parts of the world, it was really beneficial because it was more important to um, have that insulation in the winter that of um, having, you know, flat hair that stayed close to your head. And yeah, they also, they went further by trying to simulate uh, sweat by like wetting <laughs> the mannequins just um giving them a spritz and um they did find like unsurprisingly being bald made the evaporation cooling process of sweat most effective um but again they're like it it seems like on the balance having some hair to protect your head from absorbing the heat in the first place um tends to be a win and this like really blew my mind because of how much sense it made to me because uh, people who don't have curly hair ask me all the time how I can stand to have my hair down in the summer. And Me too. <laughs> this has been going through my mind. Yes. Yeah. And I'm always like, I don't know. It, it's, it's not the hottest part of me. Right. And when I straighten my hair, I always sweat like a maniac. It's it's like disgusting. So, so you felt the difference. Yeah. And I never it never occurred to me until reading this study mm-hmm. that that was the difference. I always thought like I must just be more aware of the sweat because like my hair is closer to my head. I don't know. Um, 
But now I'm like, yes, I do actually, my hair does have ventilation powers. (laughs) Yeah. Anecdotally, it makes so much sense now because my hair is like curly and kind of gets more straight over a couple of days. And I Mm -hmm. feel like my heat tolerance goes down over those days. (laughs) Yeah. It's really real. (laughs) I always have my hair down anyway. And now I know why. Because my my curls vent me. Thank you, curls. (laughs) Curls are doing the absolute most. (laughs) They are. Yeah. Well, and some other studies have found that, like, if you look at, obviously, this was on mannequins, and the researchers do hope to, like, do more studies um, that capture the full, uh, you know, experience of of a human body and human hair. Um, But there has been some related research uh, on this. And, like, one study that looked at bald men found that they sweat on their scalps uh, at two to three times the rate of men who have scalp hair. And then there were some researchers who found that, like, uh, when you shave hair off of the head, there are higher heat loads. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's basically like w- when you have less hair, you sweat more because sweating becomes the more effective way to stay cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, like having longer hair traps heat more than than short hair. Um, but one thing that's really awesome is that going back to kind of like the uh like very reductive historical research on hair um there is another population that um are are not related to uh african populations closely at all who have like very tightly coiled hair um and that's the uh melanesians who are the predominant indigenous peoples of um an area of oceania that's like from new guinea to the fiji islands um and their ancestors came from east asia they do have a fair bit of Denisovan genes, the same way that a lot of uh, Europeans have a lot of Neanderthal genes. Uh, Denisovans were another um, human relation that they had relations with. And uh, so <laughs> the Denisovan genes would have had kind of a more uh, direct uh, tie to an African descent. Um, but yeah, this is just like totally... A different population that has also uh, kept this probably ancestral, uh, very uniquely human coiled hair. And uh, they are also often blonde due to a completely different mutation than the one that uh, made people blonde in Europe. And um, I think that's just a really great little microcosm of like a lot of us have a lot of assumptions about um, how like phenotypes work. Um, And really, Like the human population is this like amazing spectrum of different traits and mutations that have happened. Um, And like people can people can come out all sorts of ways. Uh, And curly hair, really choice, really primo as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I'm convinced. I have to agree. (laughs) There are no cons. Yeah. Um, Um. I like how you put it as a spectrum, Rachel, because I think we often forget that a lot of these traits are not just controlled by one gene um, or they are controlled by one gene. But then like that proximity of the proximity of that gene to other genes, you know, there are a lot of factors that help code who you are. So it's not about having one trait because everyone just has a unique combination Um, but I see on the scientific end how that just complicates things if they can't put us in a hair bucket or a skin bucket. It's true. Scientists have loved buckets for so long. And now they're like, oh my God, it turns out we need so many buckets. The buckets are out of control. But that's beautiful. Um, I love that. Oh, go ahead. No, just I love that we're learning enough. Uh, We're learning that like human evolution is like so chaotic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yes, there's it so is. <laughs> much variation that can happen. And a lot of the like things that were considered like very straightforward, um, you know, 50 years ago. Now it's like, oh, wow, we were looking at a tiny, tiny corner of this actually extremely complicated thing. And um, I'm sure that uh, has been frustrating for some people to wrap their heads around. But I think it's super cool. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, it makes me more excited about science. <laughs> I always forget and relearn how unique 
sweating is, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, uh, like birds don't sweat (laughs) Mm, Um, mm -hmm. and have a lot of various ways of cooling themselves down. And it always just kind of blows my mind again and again. I don't think about it as much. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like a really odd thing that we do. It's amazing. (laughs) Like pooping on their legs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's also so unique to individuals like true i i didn't realize not everyone sweats out of their armpits like my coworkers and i were talking about it and they were like yeah we like i'm a sweaty back person and i'm like but i thought everyone sweated out of their armpits i mean i guess they do but some places are sweatier than others true on certain people i have a pal who has uh i think it's is it hyperhidrosis yeah hyperhidrosis oh, yeah. uh and they just sweat and sweat and sweat. And I'm I'm a pretty sweaty person, too. And I'm like, amazing. We all have different ways. <laughs> yeah. Birds don't sweat. That's wild. <laughs> it, it is wild. So a lot of birds, I, I'm going to take any opportunity to just sneak a bird fact in at any oh, time. A lot of birds <laughs> cool themselves down by fluttering their guler pouch, which is <laughs> sounds really cool. And it's kind of like a spot in their neck that they literally just flutter. It looks like they're panting, but they're kind of like rushing uh. air. And as we know, turkey vultures use urohydrosis and just, uh, you know, pee on their own legs and that cools them down. And they also can cool down by... Sometimes you'll see vultures doing this pose where they're like holding their wings out very epically, you know, like... On a power line or something like that. And they use that behavior to sometimes cool down and also to sometimes warm up. So they've got they've got oh. a couple strategies to to deal with differing temperatures. Nice. Yeah. Well, maybe if I have some time on my hands this summer, I will try. I don't think I've ever curled my hair. So maybe I'll try curling my hair and see if it helps. I'll go you bake in the sun for a bit. Such beautiful hair. Please don't. Please don't heat chill your hair. Um, uh, I'll not, use, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's true. Do do one of those uh, those overnight, uh, you know, the, the robe hair thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. the, there's so much. We've come so far in, in uh, heatless uh, hairstyling technology. Um, I actually, you know, it's, it's funny. I've uh, written about several of Dyson's hairstyling tools and the R&D behind them because they truly do like you know science the shit out of everything they do <laughs> however you might feel about the air wrap uh much brilliant work went into it uh and um yeah like when I first started talking to them like when they first came out with their first hair dryer and they were like we're gonna be doing this now this is like a thing we do uh we're just in the business of circulating air to, to make things happen um one thing that they kept emphasizing was like we went looking for research on hair and there is none and it's not true that there's literally none but they were like no one had done the empirical research on heat damage let alone for like multiple hair types um and so i think it's so amazing that um, researchers like dr lissisi are are super curious and like innovative about asking these questions and then and also like you know from um a less curiosity more profit driven side like it also makes sense to ask these questions absolutely everybody has hair and it's all different and lots of people want to do stuff with it so like please please companies who take my money um do some do some hair science uh so you know i think it's been really cool to see uh, some of Dyson's findings come out and, and impact their their hair products. But um, obviously, there's still a lot more work to be done. Um, yeah. A lot of good weird stuff today. Really, really <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. Um, balance. We learned about people not going to space, but. Just most of us. In, yeah, that's true. <laughs> relatable yeah honestly those these people seem to have come much closer to going to space than i ever will so um they did more space trading than i have true i'm gonna start doing some handstands to get ready like just in case yeah (laughs) amazing uh liz remind our listeners where they can find you 
So you can find me at I paint burbs, and yes, that's B-I-R-B-S, I paint burbs, basically anywhere. Um, you can even find me at ipaintburbs.com <laughs> if you need some birdie stickers in your life. Uh, I'm, I'm scheming on some turkey vulture designs as we speak. I'm feeling very Amazing. inspired. <laughs> the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.